Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Despite working in places that offer the opportunity for a massive number of potential eyewitnesses, the following people seemingly vanished into thin air, leaving no one who could tell the story of what happened to them, leaving them mysteriously listed. Number 6. Lynn Burdick In 1982, 18-year-old Lynn Burdick had a lot to live for. She was a senior at McCann Vocational Technical High School and she worked part-time at her cousin Suzanne's store, the Barefoot Peddler Country Store in Florida, Massachusetts. Lynn would be described by family and friends as a quiet and shy girl who didn't date much. Lynn was scheduled to work the clothes shift on April 17, 1982. Suzanne called at 8 o'clock to check up on the day's takings. They spoke for a while until Suzanne heard the bell of the door, which signalled a customer arriving. Lynn simply said, quote, Can't talk, got a customer, and she ended the call. Around this time, police received reports of an attempted abduction at the nearby Williams College campus. An unidentified man approached a college student and attempted to push her into a dark Ford sedan. Thankfully, she managed to escape. A police officer patrolling the area would later report seeing a similar vehicle driving in the direction of the Barefoot Peddler Country Store. After this, contemporary news articles give two different reports. The Charlie Project reported that another customer arrived around 20 to 9pm but the Berkshire Eagle reported that it was her brother that arrived. Regardless as to whoever arrived at the store, they found Lynn's book open on the counter with a half-drunk soda, but there was no sign of Lynn. The police were contacted and they processed the crime scene. They discovered $187 was missing from the cash register, but there was no signs of a struggle. Now, it is possible that the perpetrator had a weapon, so Lynn may have left willingly. Hundreds of volunteers would search the surrounding woodlands in the days and weeks that followed, but no trace of Lynn was ever found. No suspects have been formally named in this case. However, former prosecutor and now author, Timothy Burke, he believes that a man he sent to jail is responsible. 
Leonard Paradiso was a convicted murderer and sex offender who Burke sent to jail for the rape and murder of one woman in 1979 and the attempted sexual assault of two other women. Burke has no evidence to support his claims besides that Paradiso often hunted deer in Florida. Burke also considers Paradiso the prime suspect in two more murders of young women in the same area. 18-year-old Kim Benoit went missing in North Adams, Massachusetts on November 1st, 1974. She would be found 15 days later, strangled at the bottom of a 50-foot embankment off River Road in Florida and 17-year-old Cynthia Krisnak, who was last seen in Williams College Memorial Library on October 17, 1976. Cynthia would be found a month later, strangled and bludgeoned at the bottom of a rocky gorge off Route 9 in Windsor, Massachusetts. If Paradiso was involved in any or all of these murders, we will never know. Paradiso died of cancer in February 2008. The last update in this cold case would come in 1995. Lynn's father received an anonymous letter from a man. He claimed that his own daughter had been abducted and murdered and that her killer lived in North Adams. This anonymous writer believed the same killer was responsible for Lynn's disappearance. This letter was handed over to the police, but they were never able to determine the origins of the letter past the postmark of Boston. However, they stated that they knew who the alleged North Adams killer was. Now, it is possible that this man is self-proclaimed minister Lewis Lent Jr., who lived in North Adams and confessed to murdering a number of children through Maine, New York and Pittsburgh. In all, he would claim he had murdered six children. Contemporary news articles referenced to Lent's snatch kit he carried, which contained duct tape, disguises and candy. Lent was an early suspect in Lynn's disappearance. However, Lent's alleged victims were just children, much younger than 18-year-old Lynn. Lynn Burdick was 18 years old at the time of her disappearance. She had brown hair and blue eyes. Lynn had prescription eyeglasses that she needed to wear. At the time of her disappearance, Lynn was five foot four and weighed 115 pounds. She always wore her McCann Vocational Technical High School class ring with a blue stone and her name engraved on the underside. If Lynn was still alive today, she would be 55 years old. 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Number five, Lisa Giese. In February 1989, 26-year-old Lisa Giese was excited for her future. She was planning to marry her longtime love in just a few weeks. She was working in a job that she loved, a computer programmer at a local picture framing company in Norcross, Georgia. A job that she was so committed to that even though it was her day off on February 26th, she went into work to run inventory. Employees attending work the following day were shocked at what they met. Ankle-deep water covered the property and by Lisa's desk was a pool of blood. Investigators would later determine that the day previous, the last time Lisa was seen alive, someone had started a fire. And because the sprinkler system wasn't linked to the alarm system, this went undetected. The search for Lisa commenced immediately. Lisa would normally park her car in the parking lot near work, but instead her 1983 Nissan Pulsar was found parked a block away. The only car in the parking lot that morning was a company van with blood on the door. Unfortunately, this blood was never tested due to rain that hampered the early investigation washing away any vital evidence that may have been there. Friends would frantically try to contact Lisa's pager. Construction workers completing maintenance on the roof of a nearby building would hear the pager beeping. Lisa's purse would be found discarded on this roof, but her car keys would never be located. In the woods near Lisa's work was a 10-pound doorstop and a cloth mail cart. Like the company van, these items would be stained with blood but diluted with rainwater. Because of this, it could never be determined whether the blood was Lisa's. Her fellow co-workers, her family, roommates and fiancé would all be questioned extensively but would be ultimately cleared of suspicion. Well, almost all. A fellow co-worker of Lisa's became the only person of interest ever named in Lisa's abduction. This former co-worker tried to embezzle money from the company. It is theorised that this co-worker may have been there that night to erase files and ran into Lisa killing her to silence her from revealing his secret. This theory is strengthened as it was later reported someone tried to sabotage the company's computer system the night Lisa disappeared. This co-worker refused to be interviewed by investigators and did not have an alibi for the night in question. Several years later, this co-worker's ex-wife reported that one night he told her the well on their property was a good place to hide a body and she believed that was where he disposed of Lisa's body. 
Investigators took this claim seriously and searched six well sites in the property, but only animal carcasses could be found. Lisa Giese was 26 years old at the time of her disappearance. She had brown hair and was of petite build. She wore contact lenses and had pierced ears. If Lisa was still alive today, she would be 56 years old. Number 4. Laurie Depries Mark had spent the evening waiting with his sister and friend for his girlfriend, 20-year-old Laura Depries, to finish work and join them at his apartment. Laurie had told him earlier that day that she had a gift for him, but first had a shift at the graffiti store where she worked in Grand Chute, Wisconsin. Laurie had bought Mark a ring and was excited to give it to him. Between 10.15 and 10.30pm, the trio heard what was the recognisable noisy muffler of Laurie's car stop in front of the apartment complex. But when she didn't come inside, Mark went out looking for her. Outside in the parking lot, he found Laurie's grey 1984 Volkswagen Bug or Volkswagen Rabbit. It's been reported as both. But Mark found Laurie's car, but no sign of Laurie. The only signs left that she was there was her overnight bag and purse locked inside the car, as well as a soda cup left on the roof. When Mark, his sister and their friend couldn't find Laurie, and when she didn't return to the apartment, they called the police at quarter to twelve to report her missing. Her dad only finding out about her disappearance when Mark contacted him at six the following morning. The police interviewed Laurie's co-worker and it was determined that when graffiti closed at 10pm, she locked the store with Laurie and together they walked to their cars in the shopping centre parking lot. Laurie's car was last seen heading in the direction of her boyfriend's apartment in nearby Mensha. As there were no signs of a struggle at the scene, the police theorised that Laurie most likely left with someone she knew. Her family stated that Laurie was introverted and cautious and would never get into the car with a stranger willingly. Laurie's family, friends and boyfriend all agreed to take a polygraph and all passed, clearing those closest to her from suspicion. The only evidence was found on the styrofoam soda cup left behind on her car. An unidentified fingerprint was found, but no match could be found. However, due to the size of the fingerprint, it is believed to belong to a woman. This woman, though, could have simply been the person who sold Laurie the drink. This has never been further substantiated, however. The case went cold almost immediately, but then suddenly in 2010, a confession from an early suspect brought the case back into the public eye. Larry D. Wayne Hall was imprisoned for the 1993 abduction and murder of Jessica Roach, 
whose remains were found in a cornfield in Indiana. Despite only being convicted of Jessica's murder, Hall was a suspect in up to 40 unsolved missing and murder cases involving young women. In November 2010, Hall confessed to also being responsible for abducting and killing Laurie. In his confession, he claimed he went into the graffiti store in the Fox River Mall on the day she went missing, and he asked her out, only for her to turn him down, telling him she already had a boyfriend. Hall then claimed to follow her to the apartment complex, and he called her over to look at a photo album of unique cars. He convinced her to get into his car and drove away. He sexually assaulted and killed her before dumping her remains in a wooded area. Hall provided details to the police that only the killer could know, and investigators do consider this confession the most credible that they have received since Laurie disappeared. Police determined that Hall could have been in their area on the weekend before Laurie's abduction, He had attended a Civil War reenactment, and a search of Hall's van found notes with the words Laurie and Fox River written on it. Investigators searched the area Hall claimed he had buried Laurie, but no evidence could be found. Investigators have since acknowledged that Hall's confession could simply be a bid to avoid the death penalty. Laurie's case is officially considered unsolved and remains an open investigation. Laurie Depries was 20 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen August 19, 1992, leaving Fox River Mall at 10pm. According to her Charlie Project profile, Laurie was 5 foot 5 and 115 pounds, with brown hair and green eyes, although Laurie was known to wear brown-tinted contact lenses. At the time of her disappearance, Laurie was wearing a sleeveless, black rib-knit turtleneck with horizontal stripes, black and white striped spandex shorts, and black leather slip-on shoes. If Laurie was still alive today, she would be 47 years old. Number 3. Curtis Pishon 40-year-old Curtis Pishon had had a rough couple of years. He received medical retirement from his job as a police officer due to a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis a disease that made working painful. Losing a job that he loved led him to spiralling into a depressive state and relying on alcohol to cope. However, after losing a security job due to showing up drunk on repeated occasions, he was determined to turn his life around. And by mid-2000, he had finished a successful stint in rehab and started a new security job with Venture Corporation. On July 5th, 2000, Curtis arrived at Venture Corporation in Seabrook, New Hampshire, at around 9.30pm. 
He parked his car and walked the short eight feet distance to the guard shack. The guard he was relieving would later report that Curtis seemed upbeat and in good spirits. The two chatted for a while before the guard left Curtis for the evening. This observation would be supported by Curtis's supervisor, who contacted him at midnight and who would later report that Curtis did not seem to be depressed or upset. The next contact anyone would have with Curtis was at 2am, when a call was put through by Curtis to the fire department. Curtis's car had caught on fire. Curtis also recorded this in his guards log, stating that he had no idea why and how this happened. The fire department arrived on the scene within minutes and was surprised to see a fairly calm Curtis. Workers at the neighbouring plant would later report seeing Curtis take a break around quarter past three. Nothing more worth of note happened until quarter to four, when the same workers reported seeing two cars racing out of the driveway of Venture Corporation. Between 4 and 6am, Curtis's relief arrived to an empty guard shack. Curtis's burnt-out car was in the parking lot and all of Curtis's belongings, his lunch, contact lenses case and solution, cigarettes and lighter, they were all left inside the shack. His last entry in the log was at 3am, but there was no sign of Curtis. Police searched the area and found evidence of an attempted robbery. A change machine broken into using a forklift, a vandalised vending machine and a kicked-in door. There were no taxis or truck deliveries at the factory that night, so it is impossible for Curtis to leave as he could not walk long distances because of his multiple sclerosis. A person of interest quickly came to the investigators' attention. A co-worker of Curtis's, Robert April, had recently threatened Curtis over a parking ticket. Curtis also spoke to his family that he was worried that he wasn't safe at work, that he knew about drug deals taking place in the parking lot at Venture. His concern was that heightened that he recently bought back his police-issued 9mm from his father. This firearm would later be found at the Hampton Inn Motel, where Curtis had been living in the months before his disappearance. Number 2. Mark Ramen. 40-year-old Mark Ramon had lived in New York his whole life, only leaving to serve in the army after his graduation from high school. After he finished his sentence, he returned to his hometown and secured a job at Woolworth's department store in the Pyramid Mall in nearby Lansing, where he would go on to work for 17 years. In January 2000, Mark was laid off from work and began looking for another job within the same Pyramid Mall. This was what he was doing on January 18, 2000, 
before leaving on foot between 9.30 and 10pm, headed towards his home, which he shared with his brother. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Mark. When Mark hadn't arrived home by the following day, Mark's brother called their mother at around 7 in the morning. He wondered if she had heard from Mark, which she hadn't, and she reported Mark missing to the police. An extensive search of the area was conducted, and eyewitnesses would place Mark in a wooded area near his home the day after he disappeared. But these sightings were never confirmed, and no evidence of Mark's whereabouts has ever been found. Mark's family do not believe he would simply leave on his own accord. He was always in regular contact with his family. Since Mark's disappearance, his credit cards and bank accounts have not been accessed. The Tompkins County Sheriff's Department support the family's assertions and they believe that foul play was involved. Mark Raman was 40 years old at the time of his disappearance. His Charlie Project profile states that he was 5'5 and 135 pounds, with brown hair and hazel eyes. He wore prescription gold-rimmed eyeglasses. At the time of his disappearance, Mark was wearing a tan jacket, green golf shirt, blue jeans and light green sneakers. Mark was missing the top of his right middle finger, which was cut off in an accident. If Mark Raman was still alive today, he would be 60 years old. Number 1. Kristen Modafferi June 1, 1997 was a time of celebration for Kristen Modafferi. She had just marked her long-awaited 18th birthday by flying from her home in Charlotte, North Carolina, to San Francisco. The city had Kristen's heart since her previous visit three years earlier. Because of this, she decided to spend her summer break from studying design at North Carolina State University there, taking a photography class at the University of California. She had rented a room for the summer in Oakland and worked two different jobs to support herself, one of which was in Spinelli's Coffee House in San Francisco. Kristen's course was scheduled to begin on June 24th, an event that she was excited about, further exploring her creative side, something her family and friends knew that she was passionate about. Unfortunately, she would never make it to class that day and she would never be seen again. June 23, 1997, Kristen would finish her shift at Spinelli's at 3pm, withdrawing cash from a nearby ATM. Her co-workers would later report to police that they saw Kristen, 45 minutes later, walking with a blonde woman, on the second level of Crocker Galleria Mall, where the coffee shop was also located. Investigators appealed to this woman to come forward, as she may spread some light on Kristen's plans for the afternoon or her whereabouts, but this woman has never been identified. 
Unfortunately, it would take three days for Kristen's parents to realise their daughter was missing when they called the house she was staying in and spoke to one of her roommates. They immediately flew to San Francisco, posting flyers and stopping anyone who would listen to spread awareness of the missing pretty 18-year-old. The authorities were able to get some solid leads early in the investigation. Bloodhounds were able to trace Kristen's scent to the number 38 bus stop outside the mall. A co-worker would later report to police that on the day she went missing, Kristen had asked her for directions to Baker Beach. The number 38 bus stopped near Baker Beach. The bloodhounds managed to track her scent here too, which stopped at the water's edge, leading some to theorise that she had possibly been swept away out to sea. When investigators searched her rented room, they uncovered a personal ad from a newspaper which read, Female seeking friends to share activities who enjoy music, photography, working out, walks, coffee or just simply the beach, exploring the Bay Area. It has never been determined whether Kristen placed this ad, responded to it or just simply kept it out of interest, therefore making it near impossible to look into anyone she could have potentially met with on the day she went missing. On July 10th, 1997, investigators received what they thought was their big break in the case. A man called a San Francisco television station claiming to know what happened to Kristen. The caller claimed that two women had killed her after she turned down their romantic advances, later dumping her body under a bridge in the Port Reyes area. Unfortunately, this story was quickly discredited after the caller was identified. Investigators interviewed the two women the caller alleged had murdered Kristen. The women had a strong alibi for the afternoon Kristen was last seen, and they told investigators that the man who made the call was John Omar and that Onmar was looking for revenge on the women because they had fired his girlfriend from her place of work. This was only the beginning of the suspicious behaviour of Onmar. Onmar would admit to making up the allegations and that he had learnt about the details of the case from the local news. When the Oakland police wanted to interview Onmar further about the disappearance, they were unable to find him. America's Most Wanted ran a segment on him, looking for information on his whereabouts. After this episode went to air, three different women came forward, claiming that Omar had assaulted them, even using them to try and meet other women from personal ads. One woman claimed Onmar had struck her over the head and told her he was going to kill her, allegedly telling her, now you know what happened to Kristen Modafferi. These women never filed charges against him and no physical evidence has ever been found tying Onmar to Kristen's disappearance. Onmar publicly also claimed that investigators polygraphed him and he passed, 
Now, this claim has never been backed up by the investigators on Kristen's case, and John Omar remains a person of interest. The most recent development in the case came in 2015. Retired detective Paul Dotsey and his search dog Buster searched the basement of the Oakland apartment where Kristen rented her room. Buster alerted to the scent of human remains. The Oakland police used ground-penetrating radars and a dig was performed. However, when another private search of the basement was carried out in 2017 by Dotsey, and with the assistance of a forensic anthropologist, blood was found in between the apartment building Kristen had been living in at the time of her disappearance and a neighbouring apartment which was used as a halfway home. Using DNA samples provided by Kristen's parents, it has been claimed that the blood does belong to Kristen. However, the investigators in the case have publicly stated that they still need to independently verify these results using their own lab. Kristen Modafferi was 18 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 8 and weighed about 140 pounds. She had dark brown hair, brown eyes and facial dimples when she smiled. At the time of her disappearance, Kristen was wearing a black Spinelli shirt, a long-sleeved dark blue plaid flannel shirt and tan pants. She was last seen carrying a green jean sport brand backpack with two library books inside. If Kristen was still alive today, she would be 40 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 